be what it says on the front door. Make a layered proposal, make a layered delicious invitation for people to engage, but be what it says on the front door. Welcome to Mission Critical, a podcast about the big picture, the purpose, and the values that drive today's most game-changing companies, entrepreneurs, and leaders. I'm your host, Lance Chung, Editor-in-Chief of Bay Street Bull, and I'll be introducing you to a group of brilliant minds who are making an impact on the world and forging the path ahead. While they may all be very different from one another, the question remains the same. What's your mission? There are many parallels that can be drawn between running a kitchen and leading a business. Both require leadership, focus, tenacity, perseverance, and above all, passion to get you through the inevitable hills and valleys that come along the way. It's something that internationally renowned chef and restaurateur Marcus Samuelson knows a thing or two about. With restaurants around the world from Miami to Sweden to Montreal, a James Beard Award and celebrity appearances on Food Network shows, just to name a few of his accomplishments, success is something that Marcus has achieved throughout his illustrious career. But the journey has not been without its own hurdles along the way. While he first made a name for himself as the executive chef of Aquavit in New York in the 1990s, his story began 7,000 miles away in Ethiopia. Marcus and his sister were adopted as young children by a white family in Gothenburg, Sweden after their biological mother passed away. This fusion of cultures would later inform much of Marcus's culinary vision and barrier-breaking career. On today's episode, I'm joined by Marcus to talk about the kitchen of his childhood, how being an immigrant has helped inform his perspective on food and culture, and how he built a global restaurant empire. Plus, what's it like to curate the menu for the Met Gala? Enjoy. Good morning, Marcus. It's a beautiful day here in Toronto, and it's made even better because I get to chat with you. How are you? I'm doing really well. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, I I mean, it's such an honor to be able to chat with you. Um, I'm a fan, and I'm so excited to chat today because we get to talk about my favorite topic, which is food and eating. I want to start by asking you, what is the most memorable meal that you've ever cooked, and who was it for? The most memorable meal for me was actually cooking for my family, for my uncle, my grandmother, my dad, because it was really the time I was maybe like 14, 15. It was really the time where I started to think about myself as a cook for the first time. Because up until that point, I just cooked with my grandmother and she was in charge, clearly in charge, (laughs) where I fished with my uncles, but they were in charge, right? Like I was on the boat with my uncles. Uh, my grandmother and my uncles lived, they didn't live close by each other. So it wasn't that often that they could come together. But I just remember doing this, being out fishing with my uncle and, you know, taking care of the fish, preparing the fish, cooking the whole meal. And both my dad and my uncle stopped in the middle of the meal, like, wow, this mackerel is really good. And, you know, I went out before to get fresh potatoes and horseradish and chives, wild chives that grows where, where we, we are. And that was really prepared lunch. And, and they were like, wow, this was really good. That's it. They, they didn't say like, that was it. But I was like, oh, wow, this could actually be something for me. You know? Yeah, absolutely. 
fast forwarding today, what does it mean to, what does breaking bread mean to you? And what does it mean to set the table and invite people to have a seat at your table? Well, I think it's still one of the core foundations that we need to do more often, right? You think about, are we still in COVID and the pandemic? And we work really hard on how can we get together and whether we break bread through FaceTime or through Zooms or whether we do it in person, we, but it's really meaningful social importance, right? And I actually remember one day when, you know, I cooked uh, the state dinner for Barack Obama. When I thought about that dinner before, the most important thing for me was I want these people to break bread, truly break bread. Because, you know, it was Prime Minister Singh from India and the president and 400 guests. I'm like, they probably don't know each other, but they have two amazing breads. We focused on the bread basket being around cornbread and chapatis. So I'm like, there are culturally breaking bread was something that I envisioned a lot in that particular moment. You know, being Ethiopian too, we eat our injera bread, which you fundamentally rip a piece of bread and then dip it into a variety of stews, right? And very often, if you have a guest, Lance, if you come to our house now, my wife would be the one saying, okay, we need to give him gursha, which really means she feeds you, right? That first bite, that's breaking bread. You can't get more intimate than that, you know? Mm-hmm. I mean, it's, it's literal, literally breaking bread and figuratively breaking bread yeah. and using that as a, a vessel for conversation and to kind of, I guess, break down barriers and really kind of understanding that, you know, we're all at the same table and we all are part of a community. And, you know, at the end of the day, I think want similar things yeah. when it comes to being humans, you know, mm-hmm. you were born in Ethiopia, raised in Sweden, and now you live in New York. How have these experiences and and cultures informed your perspective on food culture? Because they're very distinct cultures, very vibrant. So what's the impact that they've had on on your perspective? Well, I mean, with that, I would be a perfect Torontonian because like in Toronto, you have all these mixed cultures and they work so beautifully in the city. And even in our restaurant in Montreal, you know, like I feel like both Toronto and Montreal are super diverse cities that obviously the people who live in those cities knows that, but maybe not outside, you know, people don't have an understanding of how diverse a city like Toronto is, for example. I am fluent in Swedish, in the culture and in the language, but a lot of my food stems from Ethiopia, from the warmth, from the, I love the process of eating Ethiopian food and what it sets the table and the, the test and what the Berbera does, right? So I constantly go back, back and forth between these beautiful, very distinct cultures. Could not be more different, but they're also really unique to me, you know? A lot of preserves, like, like you, you, you ferment in GRI, like it's fermented. We pickle our herring in Sweden. You know, like there's a lot of things that are based, come from a st- era way before refrigerations and out of necessity. So there's not a day when I don't think about both. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And food and cooking, I mean, they're, they're such art forms and ones that are obviously influenced by other forces in our lives. How did other art forms like music 
and literature in your life impact your perspective on food? I'm curious, like, what was the soundtrack to your kitchen growing up? What did you read, you know, before or after dinner? How did these other kind of cultural influences impact your view on food? Yeah, I mean, Prince was, is, was, will always be a huge influence of me in me. Mm -hmm. Jean-Michel Basquiat will always be a huge influence. Hip-hop itself as a culture, because, uh, you know, with coming up as a young black chef, it was hard to find people. I knew there were people of color working in food, but it was hard, especially in Europe, to find them. But I did read about this young artist, Basquiat, that took street culture, and put in galleries. I'm like, what's that about? I was, I was like, whoa, this is so cool. And you know, musically, like someone like Prince, that was not just in pop, but but it was in, in several different art forms in music that I thought was so cool and so avant, like just different. Sly and Family Stones, like just like music like that, that you couldn't just bucket into one thing. And then obviously hip hop, that you know, I just remember listening so much to Tribe Called Quest and and just like was in awe of the infused jazz into the coolest thing, the art form of hip hop, right? I'm like, and Q is just like, what, who is this genius? You know, I was just like so in awe of that. So I've always been inspired by artists and musicians, more so than chefs actually, because I didn't want to be influenced too much from others. I really want to develop my own thinking, critical thinking path. So when I listened to music, I was relaxed in a way that asked questions that I can then convert into ideas of cooking. Right. So what's on your, are these the same artists that, you know, have remained on your home cooking playlist uh, today? Yeah, I mean, there's, there's always influences and changes, right? Like I love listening to Afrobeats now, like if I listen to Omale or Ber- Bernaboy or something like that, I just feel like, the beats of Afrobeats just makes me so happy. And, and like the fact that it's uh, taken off and we always had African beats in our music, but it's always been hidden as something else, whether you call it pop, rock and roll, whatever you want to call it, right? When a, there's a vertical like Afrobeats or Afropop, you can't hold it back. You know where it came from, right? So I love, love that. And I mean, hip hop will always influence me, you know, I listened to Donda a lot this summer, uh, this uh, this winter. You know, it's a long, big album, but I I, I want to listen through it a lot. I just mm-hmm. hip hop will always always be a big part of my life. Yeah, yeah. Growing up for me, um, the kitchen was always such a communal space of warmth and love and the source of some of my you know most cherished memories one of them was sitting on the floor as a child uh, and watching my grandma's or my harmonies in korean situated in front of these massive steel bowls making kimchi that would then be distributed to other members of our extended family our friends it was it was always more than you could ever imagine someone making in one sitting but it was always a communal thing because you share um what are some of the most cherished rituals that you grew up with that revolved around food and what are your rituals today well first of all i i got a i got a picture of you sitting there and it's like whoa in our (laughs) household it was not kimchi but it was herring done the same way right right uncle brought it in we uh cured it in salt and water and then we have to it's a process and you have to take it out and then eventually goes back into these pickled jars 
And then it was really my job, real again, started for real, which was labeling it and then going to a neighbor or an older elderly person that couldn't go out and get it. And if you were lucky, maybe you kept two jars for yourself that you could sell, so you got a little coin. So it's like that kimchi journey, it's, it's just same, but different, you know? Yeah, yeah. And there's like an element of time because, I mean, I think both of our cultures kind of rely on pickling uh, yes. and, and fermentation and just kind of the evolution of these cherished dishes changing and evolving as time as we do as people as well. Can I, can I ask some questions around that? Because, yeah. Uh, okay. Were you in Toronto? I, I was in Alberta growing up. Alberta, so even yeah. harder, which is even more respect, right? So, okay. Less people of color, for sure. <laughs> yeah, yeah, so respect. So I, I get how the cabbage got there, yeah. uh, but like, where did we get, where did Grandma get the ingredients from? And was it in the bath? Did you set it up in the bathtub? Or like, was the kitchen big enough? I have so many questions. Like, you, you know what? It was these big, I just remember these big steel bowls and yes. I, I have not, I don't know where they got them. I, I think just at the Korean grocery store, yeah, there's right. maybe one or two in, in Calgary. I grew up in a small town, so we had to go out of town to go get all the ingredients and everything. Yes. But we had a small community and it was a very, um, you know, communal community and sharing of resources and sharing of recipes or, or yeah. tips and tricks and stuff like that. And because that's the community that you have and you have to lean on each other, right? Then maybe with an uncle going down to Vancouver to fill up the truck and driving <laughs> back up, you know, yeah. to get all the stuff. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Artistry, I think, is so much about storytelling, and obviously this applies to food. What kind of stories are you telling when you put an item like, you know, the crispy bird sandwich on your menu at Red Rooster or the black cod at Marcus in Montreal? Like what, what are you using food as a vessel for to talk about yeah. um, that's important to you? Yeah, I look at the menu as an opportunity to engage, right, to uh, evoke a conversation. And then it could be delicious. It could be I don't know what, what's that about. It could, it's really a conversation starter, right? If you've never heard about Tef, well, you know, we could serve it as an injera that maybe you had with a friend. We can also use it in a pasta, right? Mm -hmm. So for me, it's a language, it's our language. And then the food, when it arrives, that conversation doesn't get complete until you start eating it. And then hopefully it evokes another set of questions, right? So if I do a Berber-cured salmon with mustard caviar and fermented fennel, that for me is a Swediopian dish, right? There's one mm. of one out of that, right? So there's a language that we created like, oh, I do know for, you know, cured fish, but I haven't had it with Berber and haven't had it with fermented fennel. And, you know, what's that about? So I think those are the opportunities. and. If we on the east coast of Montreal versus further down south in New York, for me, it's about locale. And when we're in Harlem, we have one dialogue that is important. And when we're in Montreal, you should have a different dialogue. Mm. It's not a one, one size fits all by any no. means. No. And it, that there lies also for me the beauty of cooking, right? Like it's, you know, when we're in Bahamas, we 
talk conch is on four places on the menu you know and if we're in 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 uh here in harlem there's many ways to celebrate african-american culture in a way that it feels new and exciting and surprising at some point yeah and, and talking about your your career path um because you've had a, a wonderfully successful career and have built you know so many locations internationally um i read an interview where you mentioned that you wrote down your goal to one day have your own restaurant how did that help you manifest your journey and the things that you wanted to you know come into your life by outwardly projecting what you wanted out of the universe <laughs> yeah well, let's I think that one of the blessings that we have as people of color is that our choices very often can be driven by what's not in front of us, the opportunities that we may or may not get. So for me, it was very clear that I had to be the biggest cheerleader of me. Mm, yeah. And if I exuded the energy that maybe uh, an older mentor then, a positive energy, maybe an older mentor would see something in me and push me along. And if I didn't say intentionally, I remember being at an interview at three, at 23, I just completed a, a year of working for free in France and it was great, it was three-star Michelin. And uh, the chef said to me, uh, go home, come back in a couple of months and we'll do it all again. And I said, I can't. He said, what do you mean? I said, you know, I got to go now because I got to, I'm going to open my own restaurant. He said, what are you talking about? You can't open your own restaurant. And I said, well, I have to. That's my dream. And then he said, like, well, lower your dream. Change your dream. I said, I can't do that. I'm 23 years old. He's 50. <laughs> and he just broke it down to me very simple. Like, you know, any Black person in France owning a restaurant of the standard of what we're doing? I said, like, I don't know. I've I only been in France for one year. <laughs> I don't know all of French. He's like, no. Uh, do you know anyone in Europe? She's so like, okay, let me be a broad expectation. I was like, no, I don't. But I'm like, that doesn't prove anything to me. It was just like, that was the moment of that time. That wasn't a good sign. Like, it didn't prove anything to me. I was like, no, I'm still going to go and do this, right? right? And I needed at an early age to project out my intent. My, maybe it was for myself. Maybe it was for my parents maybe it was for a mentor, it was for that tribe that completely believed in me. That has helped me through the ups and downs of entrepreneurship and hospitality can give you. And it's something I wanna hold on to. Have you always had a very clear idea of your, or understanding of your identity and, and what you wanted to say about yourself in the world from the get-go or you know, how much of an evolution has that been throughout your career? I think I can answer it in a different way. I think I'm just really good at one thing, which is cooking. So it's helped me. <laughs> the fact that I this is what I love. This is my passion. I'm really good at it. So it, it helped me from that perspective. I think identity, which is a very good question in terms of, but it's a different question, right? Because when you're adopted, uh, very often your identity it can be, and not just being adopted kid, a lot of kids growing up, it's, it's hard for all of us, right? But depending on, but like, I think for me, it was very clear, like we're the black kids, we have white parents, we clearly are adopted. It was not something that anybody tried to hide in our family, right? Mm. Finding your identity, I think it was, took time because when I was just a really young kid, I was just a kid. Once you become a teenager, you start thinking about 
where do you fit culture identity and all those things become more complex yeah there was a lot of back and forth but food always helped me because it gave me confidence and i also got outside approval right away like wow this kid is really good at this so when yeah. there was moments where i was maybe searching for my identity food really gave me positive feedback i would say yeah absolutely um and you've said previously that you know quote good food is a civil right and I yeah. mentioned that a few times, and yeah. I think that's such a powerful thing. But how do you define good food, and what do you mean by it being a, a civil right? Well, I think that, first of all, good food is something that exists everywhere, really. It should be possible everywhere. It looks very and feels very different depending where you are, right? It might be, if we're in the Caribbean, it might be the freshest access to ake and saltfish. If we in uh, in Sweden, it might be uh, that salt fish might be the best firm herring, and those fishermen would tell you that firm herring is not firm enough, and they judge you that way. Uh, and again, we still haven't talked about expensive food, right? This is so. It's also important that locally people value their food and know that great food locally, so they don't get confused and think like that fast food chain is the good food, right? So locally empower what's the best chickpeas if that's where you live or the best lentils or, and that that's in front of you, right? That that's valued. And um, that's why it's so important to have crab festivals or these festivals in your local community because they empower the fishermen, they empower the, the craft people that works on it and says our food has value, right? I'm, I'm sure uh, I mean, you come from a very strong cultural background in terms of Korea. I know there are many food festivals and they are super important, not just for your own community, but also tells other communities like our shit matters. Yeah. And also the difference, I think, between I, I mean, I feel like one of the things I've noticed in terms of the dialogue around this in more so in recent years is this departure from, you know, good food being kind of the traditional institutions of like French and Italian cooking and, and placing an emphasis on other cultures and what they've always had to offer, but maybe aren't just starting to be appreciated relatively recently. But they all they are good food too. I yeah. wouldn't put Italian or French out of that pocket. The only difference for me is that they're not the only good food because <laughs> the conversation for so long was like, here are the two nations that kind of sets what good food should look like. Mm -hmm. And it wasn't them just setting it. It was like also the journalists writing about it and the whole industry was invested in very much French food and then eventually Italian food and so on. But obviously everyone knows that you know, if you're in Singapore, if you're in Chile, or if you're in Peru, or if you're in Ethiopia, good food is local. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, and, you know, we're coming out of, I mean, we're still kind of in it, but the pandemic has been so traumatic. And a lot of us used have used the last two years to rediscover parts of ourselves through the lens of food. What did you discover about your own identity and your connection to food during this time? You know, people were talking about sourdough bread. I discovered a lot of recipes that I was actually intimidated by through my own culture and I had never tried. And I always watched my family members making it. And I'm like, you know, I'm going to use this time, this downtime to like learn how to make kimchi, learn how to make all these other dishes. And that was my exploration of culture through the, the lens of food. So what, you know, how is, how did you explore, you know, food? And how did the pandemic, I guess, change your understanding of that? 
Well, I it was very real, especially spring 2020, right? Because everything changed. We had to close our restaurant, then convert it to a community kitchen together with World Center Kitchen. I still knew that I had to go to work. I've done that all my life. So I, even if it was a shorter work day, I just had to do that. Then I had to go to the store because our stores didn't deliver at that point. I had to wait one hour. And during that waiting period, you know, I had my headphones on or I was thinking about my grandmother and my family that, and we essentially became more flexitarian and almost to the point only vegetarian because once you got into the store, where you go buy a fish or meat, it was another hour of mine. I'm like, I'm not doing that. And I have mm. the luxury to be able to cook so I can create anything from chickpeas, rice, potatoes, whatever. So that was a choice. And then sort of as the pandemic became the normal, we just kept eating that way. And eventually maybe there was two ounces of fish or four ounces of fish. And now as I'm opening a new restaurant in Chelsea, that way of cooking will stay into the restaurant as well. So it really shaped me. And I think that, you know, if you're a songwriter, you go through a different moment, your album comes out and that's how you respond. As a chef, I respond through food and, and very, not often, but sometimes through a restaurant. And that's what the new restaurant's gonna be about, this shift. And also thinking about it through the lens of my son and my daughter, like, whoa, we have to think about sustainability uh, and we have to think about new ways of protein and what do, what's our role as chefs with huge microphones? What, how can we help this process? Yeah, for sure. And I guess building on that, you know, coming out of the pandemic, what do you think people are going to look for in dining experiences? Is it going to be status quo where they just want to get back to what they recognize and, and are familiar with? Or has anything changed? Has Have expectations changed? Um, and has the focus shifted, whether that's towards sustainability or... Uh, anything else? You know, I, I can't predict the future, but I do know that, first of all, everything has changed because we all have, if you and I would have dinner in Toronto tonight, you have a story how you, just what we talked about, uh, how you changed and your friends and family during the pandemic. So our starting points at the dinner today is very often, how do we deal with this last 18 to 24 months, right? And then we also miss to be able to sit uh, in the table or four or six or eight, whatever it might be. So there's so much of getting back to it, I think. And that will end, you know, so I do think that diners may, might also come back more informed because I cooked more at home. So it's, we know that status quo doesn't work, right? We always change. But once we have something as big and globally connected as the pandemic, I think that really sets up also the thirst for restaurants because we all know that yeah. yes we could order home food and that ordering on food those experience became better and better but that still wasn't the answer to the social experience right so i think that we're coming out we're coming back customers are coming back chefs are coming back in a need showing that restaurants hospitality is very often the software in the community the heart of the community the belly of the community it's not these hard new the things that maybe we thought, the big buildings or the <laughs> institutional stuff. We need both. We need hardware and software. 
Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I mean, you have a portfolio of different brands that all have a very specific point of view and audience, different communities. Um, in your experience, what do you think are really, when it comes down to it, and like is the through line, the pillars of an exceptional brand experience um, through the lens of what you've done? What has worked really well? What has resonated? I think that you you have to really be what it says on the door, right? In in Montreal, we're really committed to be a great seafood restaurant. Well, we only have two meat dishes on. You know what I mean? Like like it's very much about if you're going to be, you know, at Street Bird, that we're a chicken restaurant and that's what's on the menu. Like at our Red Rooster, you know, we're very community based. So that does it's not a tagline. It's not something we came out with after the pandemic it's something that we always worked on obviously the pandemic challenged us what was the direct need for the community at that point that was different than uh, maybe when we opened you know that gives us a very specific target and what we have to work on but I think that you know be what it says on the front door make a layered proposal make a layered delicious invitation for people to engage but be what it says on the front door and I think that applies, you know, whether or not you work in the, re the restaurant industry and the food industry in general, just as, you know, we speak to entrepreneurs, our audience, and, you know, people who start their own businesses, um, small business owners, entrepreneurs, leaders, is really kind of what it comes down to is like, be authentic to what mm -hmm. you're offering and have a point of view um, and, and stick to that and commit to that vision. Yeah. No, and I've learned and you evolve, you know what I mean? And, and very often I'm, I, I think one of the beauties again about being in a market like Toronto or a market like New York is that because your surrounding is so diverse and people come to these places, very different experiences, you also constantly in the intersection of new ideas and different ways of making it and connecting. And I'm open to that because that's how you learn, how that's how you evolve, you know, and that think, one of the beauties about being, living in cities like this is that I'm completely open every day than knowing that my idea, my way might not be the best way. And I think that has to do, speaks to humility and empathy, which I think is something that we've all learned, a, a, had a masterclass on in the last two years, mm -hmm. how those two things manifested. How, how has running a business in this industry kept you humble and empathetic? Well, it was hard, like, Nance, like, you know, I have to, we had to change. We had to go through change and it was hard to come home and knowing that you work really, really hard, but knowing also that we would be okay as a family. And then it's like, once you talk through what that change might look like, then adjust to that. And then really hustling, right? Like I remember, okay, what am I gonna do with all the staff couldn't stay at Red Rooster? Well, we were lucky enough to open in Miami, so some staff could go to Miami, okay? Some staff could be over here. Like you really had to, for me, the word chef, you're really a tribe leader, right? And for me, I looked at it like, okay, you now really got to step up and hustle for your team so as many people as possible can maintain a job. It wasn't the job that dad signed up for, but it's a job, it's a paycheck coming in during this time. And then it grew out of there. So we were committed to keeping the tribe and keeping people busy because at the same time it was these words that people were saying around like that wasn't just our experiences people were saying like 
no one is in New York or everyone can work from home. Like, no, everyone can't work from home. And every, people are in New York, <laughs> you know, <laughs> how do you get to yeah. work? Like through the subway. Well, like, guess what? Somebody drove that. And in, how do you get your food delivered? Well, through that uh, corner store or for, through that restaurant. Well, you know, somebody was, it was like this double dialogue of first, not acknowledging the incre incredible people that actually kept the city going. And then like, they should just be anonymous. And I'm like, no, I, I refuse that, you know? Yeah, absolutely. I know we have a, a little bit more time left, but I want to talk about two more things quickly. You have uh, a big night coming up. You're the man in charge of the culinary program at the Met Gala, and this is your second year doing so. What goes into planning a night like that? What are the considerations yeah. that go into something that is so heavily like built on logistics too? Mm -hmm. It is built on Well, first <laughs> of all, it's, it's teamwork to the fullest, right? Like there are it's an incredible institution, the Met, working with Vogue and the tradition around fashion and the craftsmanship around fashion. And then I'm very fortunate to be able to work and select a team with our feel it's very important. Last year, we had 10 chefs. This year, we're working with three chefs. And, you know, it's not a coincidence. There are three women, uh, three women of color. You know, Melissa is an incredible chef. Uh, she's doing an incredible hamachadif dish. Lauren is in incredible as well. And she's presenting these vegan hors d'oeuvres. And then Amira is doing the cake. So it's like, for me, it's about a lens of present future Americanism, right? In terms of food, it's diverse. It's these hardworking, incredible stories that we should share and committed to craftsmanship. You know, and obviously we want it to be a fun, delicious night where we celebrate fashion and, but it's really about American craftsmanship and it can look and feel and taste uh, in a very delicious way. Right. And there is a, a mere kind of reflection in terms of the craftsmanship that you see in the fashion that is being celebrated as well as the food mm -hmm. that is also going to be celebrated um, through your program. Do you, I mean, do you get any weird requests because you're, you know, considering that you're making food for, I mean, the some of the biggest names on the planet, I imagine, I, I mean, are you beholden to that or do you kind of get to really go through with your vision on it? No, I mean, we, it, it's, we do our menu and then there's always going to be a couple of, whether it's, you know, dietary, whether it's allergies and so on. So we have a couple of other dishes available, but the core of it is the menu and, and, it's also an incredible work of teamwork. And I always say that, like, take a week off and then we start on the next year, you know what I mean? Right. Uh, and this year is going to be fun because the public con experiences too, because Bill Talapan, the chef at the Met, will then through the cafe continue the menu so people can come up and have it. Uh, and I just, that's the first time we're doing that. So it's going to be a lot of fun. And I, I it's, it's a privilege and an honor. Uh, I look forward to it, you know. I also look forward to it when it's done, but then also, again, <laughs> I look forward to it. Yeah, and I guess that's interesting, um, being able to, like, parlay the menu to people that can also get that experience. And I, I, I guess that really comes down to community again yeah. and, and letting people 
get involved and and share stories through food and experience food. Absolutely. And that was something that, that you know, Vogue and everybody was like, well, well this is a one night. People's going to talk about it. But like, let's share that experience. Right. So it was working with the math, working with Vogue. And like, I just felt like just like the state dinner. We before I did the state dinner, all the state dinner were French. I'm like, that makes sense. If there's a French <laughs> state dinner yeah. for all the other state dinners, that doesn't necessarily make sense, right? So <laughs> yeah. it was an opportunity to change something that we kind of looked at through one lens. Working with the Met and working with Vogue has been great because they were open to let's let's see if we can evolve this. Let's see if we can do something, uh, add something to this. And that's what's been so fun. And they've been super open to uh, just bringing in these young, exciting chefs. And like I said, it's America's food, present future. Yeah, definitely. Last question. We really talk about like to focus, you know, our our editorial focus on mission and purpose. What is your mission at the end of the day? What's the bigger picture for you um, that informs all the small and big decisions that you make? Yeah, I mean, when I was a young chef, I always wanted to find and work with people that look more similar to me and it was very hard to find it and I knew in my head that they were out there and so my mission is to inspire that people from all kinds of backgrounds can enter food and get inspired and where they end up on on this it's up to them right but they're when they look up and whether they google it or whether they go to the library whether they buy the book or whether they put on tv that we are out here we have a point of view and this is an industry for you that talks to you Right. That was a very, very hard thing to do when I was coming up. And I feel great in terms of the evolution where we come in terms of diversity and great food today. Right. Yeah. How yeah. you lay that out as a vision, you have to have a strategy around it. And, and, and that's that's a day to day commitment and passion that you have to do because it, it involves creating teams, uh, finance, uh, making it all work. You know what I mean? Uh, yeah. But I'm committed to the craftsmanship of cooking, which I love, you know. Yeah. And, and I love just giving people not only the opportunity to, you know, put their own mark on the world through food, but also the agency to make their own decisions too. Like that's kind of what it comes down to is like, it's not trying to put people on a path, but letting people have the choice to make their own decisions and the opportunity to realize their dreams and, and, and potential. Yeah. I love that. Thank you so much for your time. You've been super generous and you have a very busy weekend, I imagine, coming up. So I really appreciate the time. It's been so wonderful and, and delightful chatting with you. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for having, you, having me and uh, go back and cook with your family again. I can, I can just see you sitting there with a big <laughs> <laughs> and, and and enjoying the kimchi, okay? Thanks. Well, we'll hang out in Toronto when you're here sometime. Absolutely. Next time, yeah. Marquez has been able to build an incredible career for himself, not just because of the delicious dishes he serves out of his restaurants daily, but because he brings his full self to the table and invites others to break bread with him. To him, food is about community. It's about a larger conversation around values, equity, and activism. In his words, good food is a civil right. It's sustenance for not just our bodies, but our brothers and sisters, our family, our neighbors, and our friends. It's a vessel that brings us love, perspective, and, of course, full bellies. 
If you enjoyed this episode, we'd appreciate it if you left a review on Apple Podcasts so we can get the word out. To keep up to date, subscribe to our podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or anywhere else you listen to podcasts. Thanks for tuning in. Until next time, ask yourself, what's your mission?